Well, every one of us in here has pride that needs to be killed this morning. And some of us know this full and well. Some of us know it because we're very aware of ourselves and others perhaps know it because maybe you have a, a wife that reminds you of your pride. But if you're here this morning and you think that you are perfect in humility, well, that's only because you're proud and uh, blind, perhaps. Uh, and it's only maybe due to the fact that the Lord has yet to try you to bring that pride out of you. You see, pride shows itself in all kinds of ways, and often pride even likes to hide itself deep, deep within our hearts. Not too long ago, I had hidden pride that was exposed. Uh, probably seven or eight months ago, I had pinched a nerve in my back, and if you've ever pinched a nerve in your back, you know the pain can be crippling, right? Well, around that same time, my wife was very far along in her pregnancy, and we were walking through the grocery store, me with pain and her with pain, hers more obvious, mine less obvious, and I was carrying the basket, the grocery basket, and it was starting to get heavy, and we had uh, picked up at least a gallon of milk, because we always need milk in our house, and a few other things, and it was beginning to make my back bark, and uh, my wife tried to help me. She said, Josh, let, let me take that basket for you, as she is probably just weeks away from giving birth. And uh, I refused to let her help me. And it wasn't chivalry. It was pride. It was the subtle pride in me that didn't want others to see me walking carefree while my pregnant wife carried all the groceries. See, pride is often a subtle sin. But make no mistake, it is common to every one of us here this morning. Pride was present when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. And pride was also within the disciples as they sought to be seated on the right hand and the left hand of our Lord. Pride keeps us from submitting to authority. Pride keeps us from repenting of our sins. And pride keeps us from coming to our Lord and Savior. Every single one of us has pride this morning that needs to be killed. And so Peter's words are fitting for us. Peter gives us two commands in our text. Starting in verse 5b, he says, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another, for God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. There's the first command. Clothe yourselves this morning with this humble attitude towards one another. And the second command follows soon after. Very similar command to what came before. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time he might exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. So this morning, we have two commands from Peter. And so I have two points in my sermon. So let's start with the first one there in 5b. We are to humble ourselves towards one another. Clothe yourselves, Peter says, all of you with humility towards one another. So what does this humility look like for us? Well, Peter, he tells us to, to clothe ourselves with humility. This imagery of putting on Christian virtues is, is familiar to us, I hope. It's not unique to Peter. It's probably most famous in Ephesians 6 where Paul tells us to put on the whole armor of God. And so there's a clothing, a putting on that's happening there and probably familiar to us as well since we just recently went through Colossians. In Colossians 3, the putting off of sinful vices and the putting on of the Christian virtue. 
that we saw there in Colossians 3. And so Peter's imagery of putting on virtue is not unique, at least not to Peter. But the particular word that Peter uses here to, to tell, call us to put on this, this humble uh, attire is unique. The particular word is only used here throughout the entire Bible and even in the Septuagint as well, the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. One commentator says this about the particular word that Peter used. He says that, that it's a strong term and the root of it used, was used to refer to the apron that a slave or a, a herdsman, a shepherd, tried, would put over his tunic to keep him from being soiled. So this is, the, this is actually the outfit of a, a lowly person, a slave or a shepherd. And so we should get from this a, a, an image that is familiar to us, and that is the image of Christ, who himself put on a servant's garment. And so this is the, the model of our humility. This is the one who we are to imitate. As we clothe ourselves in humility, we imitate Christ, who himself clothed himself in humility, both in his incarnation as he became man, but also in the way that he washed his disciples' feet. Let me take you to that scene in John 13, starting in verse 3. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garment and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do not wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward, you will understand. So when, when Jesus took on this, this attire of a servant, of a slave, washing the feet of his disciples, they didn't understand what was going on because they had a limited vantage point. They didn't understand that Jesus was a servant king, not a ruling, conquering king, at least not yet. But we know that from from what we see that comes afterwards as Jesus is nearing the cross. We know that Jesus, the Son of Man, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. We know that our Lord was the suffering servant that Isaiah pointed forward to, the one who bore our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned aside everyone to his own ways. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And so it should be easy for us to understand what's happening here in the scene where Jesus is washing his disciples' feet he is showing us what kind of master he is. And he's not one who lords himself over others, though he would have the right to do so. But he didn't. Instead, he showed himself to be a Lord who is a servant. And so we pick up in verse 12. When he, Jesus, had washed their feet, he put on his outer garment and resumed his place. And he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for I am so. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. 
Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. We have a, a master who came to us as our servant, and now our master bids us to go and do the same. And so Paul, he picks up on this very same theme in Philippians as we imitate Christ and his, his humble service to us. And he calls us to do this. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Oh, brothers and sisters, we need to humble ourselves just as Christ humbled himself. But some of us see ourselves more as those who sit on a throne. And we think that crosses are not worthy for those who deserve thrones. Some of you think that lowly tasks are below you because you have grown too great. I'm too important to teach toddlers. But if you'd like me to lead a Bible study, I'd be glad to do that. You know, I'm not very good with a shovel or a hammer, but a guitar and a microphone, I can do that. Hospital visits, they just aren't my thing. I'm too busy. But if you'd like me to preach, I'll be there. You consider yourselves worthy for the Lord's service, but brothers and sisters, have we forgotten that we are not even worthy to untie Jesus' sandals? Let's see this command that, that Peter's giving to us now in its broader context, though, because it's all about service what came before. It's all about how we relate to one another within the body, within the church. Look at verse 5. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another, for God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. And so immediately right here in the context of this call to clothe ourselves in humility, we see that he's calling those who are younger to, to clothe themselves in humility by being subject to the elders. So let me give attention just for a moment to those in the room who would count themselves as those who are younger. And in fact, I'm going to include myself into this category because I have yet to, to receive a crown of glory on my head. There are particular temptations and particular forms of pride that, that swell up inside of us who are younger. For one, many of us who are younger have yet to be humbled by trials. We still have our strength, beauty, and with these things come pride. And if this weren't enough already, young people are very zealous. And to be clear, zeal for the Lord is a wonderful thing. But if zeal for the Lord is not tempered with humility, then it can be a very dangerous thing, damaging thing to the church. And if these weren't enough reason for those who are younger to get special attention from Peter, Peter tells those who are younger to be subject to the elders, likely due to the fact that those who are younger are ones who do not like to receive instruction. They are not easily given to submission 
but instead would prefer to criticize those who are in leadership. We may think or even say out loud, well, I wouldn't have made that mistake if I was the one in charge. I would have been able to make more progress on that project if I was the one leading it. Well, for those who are younger, those like myself who are tempted towards criticism and being puffed up with pride, let us imitate our master's humility. For though he was strong and though he was far more glorious than any of us, he did not criticize us in our weakness, but instead he humbled himself, being found in the form of a servant. But let us shift our view now, not to those who are younger, but to those who are older. Peter's not just talking to younger Christians here. He said in verse 5, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. So to those who are older, you have a particular form of temptation and pride that swells up inside of you that might be a little bit different than those who are younger. For one, those who are older might be tempted to look down on younger people. But for those who would do so, let me remind you of the wisdom that came not from Job's older friends, but the wisdom that came from the young Elihu, Job 32, 6. He said, I am young in years and you are aged. Therefore, I was timid and afraid to declare to you my opinion. I said, let days speak, and many years teach wisdom. But it is the spirit in man and the breath of the Almighty that makes him understand. It is not those who are old who are wise, nor the aged who understand what is right. Therefore, I say, listen to me. Let me also declare my opinion. So those who are older. Those who would be tempted to look down on those who are younger and thinking that they have no wisdom at all. Let me remind you, wisdom comes from God, not from age. And age certainly helps, as the Lord teaches us. I do hope that those who are older would grow in wisdom to teach those who are younger. But to those who are older, I would say, don't look down on those who are young. But again, to those who are older, there's another temptation. And that is that you would look down on certain holy duties within the church. Some would think that they have outgrown the the garb of a servant because they have grown up. You have grown so high that you cannot stoop down low anymore. But again, you should imitate the Lord, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Our Lord, though he was in heaven, was not too high and lifted up to come down to us, to to serve us and to save us. So let us not think that we are too high and lifted up either to come down to the level of children. But let me uh, take one more approach to this passage that I think is important as well. When he says, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another, it would be hard to neglect that which Tate preached on last week, the instruction to elders. It'd be difficult not to see how the elder pastor himself is to to be seen within the context of one who is to clothe himself in humility as well. Peter just said this, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being an example to the flock. 
And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Tate did a fantastic job preaching this, so I don't want to re-preach it, but let me make three observations to, to Mark, Ken, Tate, and myself. Three observations very quickly. First, pastors are shepherds. It's a position of oversight to be clear, and it's ours to keep watch over the sheep, but the position of a shepherd is a, a lowly position. It's a low position in society. You'll remember King David himself was a shepherd out watching the sheep, and his own father did not think him worthy to be a king when Samuel came looking for who the Lord would choose. The position of a shepherd is a very lowly position, and and we are called to put on the garb of a shepherd here, that of a servant. Second observation very quickly here. Pastors aren't to be domineering rulers. They're not kings. They're not rulers like the Gentiles, but they're examples to the flock of humility. The disciples would have disputed who was the greatest, but Jesus would remind them that the greatest must be the least. And finally, we are not chief shepherds. We are under shepherds. And there is only one chief shepherd, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ Brothers, the church does not belong to us. It belongs to him. And so to each of us, as well as any others who might aspire to be a pastor, let us keep our proper place as servants. For the greatest among you shall be your servant. But whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Which leads us to the next point. In verse 5, Peter calls us to clothe ourselves with humility towards one another, and the reason for it he gives, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So why should any of us here willingly put on the garb of a servant? Well, Peter gives us the reason in two answers, one with a warning and one with a, a reward. The motivation for humility is God's wrath and his grace. God's wrath, that being that he opposes those who are proud. His wrath is given to those who are haughty, but his grace is given to the humble. And so for those who think that putting on this, this garb of a servant is ridiculous and beneath you, well then, let me remind you of the proud Korah and all those who he stirred up in a rebellion against Moses and Aaron. Understand, they criticized their leaders and they raised up 250 other chiefs in Israel who thought that they would be better leaders than Moses and Aaron. Listen to the account in Numbers 16, verse 3. They assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said to them, You have gone too far, for all in the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? There's Korah. Sounds so righteous. Sounds so right. And yet he is a rebel who is proud. And do you remember what happened to Korah and that mob that he put together? Well, the Lord opposed him in his pride. The Lord caused the earth to open up and swallow all of them to their doom. So learn from Korah and know that the Lord opposes the proud and he gives grace to the humble. Korah's sons are wonderful examples of those who are humble and learned that he gives grace to those who are in lowly positions. Korah's sons penned Psalm 84. Listen to their words. 
and the humility that they count and the gracious reward that they receive from the Lord. They said, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper, a, a low position. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of the wicked like their father Korah. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. And so let us learn from Korah and let us learn from Korah's sons that the Lord opposes the proud and he gives grace to the humble. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And he continues, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God so at the proper time he might exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Let me point out a, an important detail that the ESV translators are trying to help us see by that paragraph break that they put here between verses 5 and 6. There's a common theme, that of humility, that bridges these two paragraphs, but, but they change the paragraph here to help us see that there's a change of thought happening in, in Peter. Verse 5 was within the context of the, the elder pastor. Now they are to conduct themselves to the sheep as well as those who are younger, as well as the rest of the congregation and how we're to conduct ourselves among each other. That we are to be humble towards each other, clothe ourselves for service towards one another. And in verse 6, to be clear, it does continue the theme of humility, but a new relationship is introduced here. It's not that of a shepherd and not that of the sheep but it's that of all of us who are under the, the mighty hand of God. And so verse 5, if you understand this language, is, is about a horizontal humility that's happening this way between one another. But verses 6 now have in mind a new relationship, a vertical relationship between man and God, between you and the Lord, and the way that we are to humble ourselves under him. So the second command is different, though very similar to the first. And the second is that we are to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. Understand that phrase, the mighty hand of God this morning. If it wasn't enough for us to already see that God's wrath is poured out and his grace is poured out to, to those who are humble, his wrath to those who are proud, if those don't motivate you enough to cause you to be humble and lowly this morning, understand that the reason for that is because your view of God is far too small. If you truly know God, then you will know him to be great and mighty. You will know him to be a, a glorious God that far outshines any creature, anything in creation. And so if you know God to be great and mighty, you will be humble. The phrase here, the mighty hand of God, is language that's taken from Exodus, where God put his greatness and his might on display for the whole world to see. Listen to it from Exodus 3.19. Him, this is the Lord, this is Yahweh speaking now to Moses. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. And if you know the story of Exodus, you know that the Lord stretched out his hand against Pharaoh and against Egypt until Pharaoh would finally let the Israelites go. And so when Israel was to celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread, they were to remember the Lord 
by his mighty hand, Exodus 13.3. Then Moses said to the people, remember this day in which you came up out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, for by a strong hand the Lord brought you out of this place. Pharaoh did not humble himself under God, and so the Lord humbled him. But God gave grace to the humble, to those who were slaves, to those who were oppressed. And so this language of the mighty hand of God that Peter is using here would have been very precious to these exiles who themselves were in a low position in society, mistreated by those around them. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time he may exalt you. Are you here this morning, and do you see in yourself pride? Do you struggle with humbling yourself under the hand of God? If so, learn who your God is. Learn of his greatness and his might. And there are two books where we can learn this from. The first is the book of creation. Look at the sun. Look at the moon. Look at the stars. And listen to what they're saying. For the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Men who are great build pyramids. Men who are great build skyscrapers. But what do these compare to the heavens that God has made. The heavens are preachers. The heavens are declaring God's glory and his might and his greatness. And yet we have become disenchanted. We are so busy in life today, are we not, that we do not stop and look at the sky. Even the city lights here down below keep us from seeing what God has made up above. But learn from these preachers in the sky, and they will show you that your God is great and mighty. But there is a better way to learn about God's greatness and his might, and that is through the book that we are hearing this morning, from the very word of God. If you want to know how small you are and how great God is, then read about how God destroyed Jericho simply through the foolishness of marching around the city and blowing trumpets like a parade. If you want to know about how small you are and how great God is, then read about how God destroyed all the wicked men through Gideon and his puny army with nothing but jars and torches. Or best of all, if you want to know how small you are and how mighty and great our God is, then look at the the strength of God and the wisdom of God that was demonstrated there on the cross. For the foolishness of God, Paul says, is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. If you here are proud, then look at God and his greatness and his strength and know that you are nothing and compared to him. Humble yourselves, therefore, into the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he might exalt you. I want us to focus on that latter phrase here in verse 6. There's a, there's a goal that Peter has in mind. 
The goal of humility is this. It is glory. And here's the irony to this, this path to glory. The irony is those who would seek glory for themselves are those who are proud, those who would exalt themselves, those who would raise themselves above those who they, they deem less than themselves. But the irony is that those who think that their greatness is the path to glory will find themselves to be humbled under the mighty hand of God. But the true path to glory we see here is, is humility. But you might be here and you might think, well, is it even Christian to say that we should seek glory? Seeking glory sounds rather sinful and selfish, doesn't it? Well, it would be if what you mean by that is seeking the glory of men. It would be sinful if, if what I was doing even here and now was seeking your applause. And if glory is the ultimate goal, receiving applause from anyone rather than receiving God himself, well then we would even then be idolaters. But God intends for us to see something in this passage. Peter intends us to see that there is a goal to our, our humility. It's there in the phrase, so that, in 1 Peter 5, 6. That's a, that's a purpose statement right there. Why should we humble ourselves under the hand of God? Well, here's another motivation. This is, this is the purpose of our, our humility. So that at the proper time, he, that is God, may exalt you. Peter intends for us to make this our motivation. He wants our aim to be exaltation that is received from God through humility. And if you're not comfortable with this idea of actually having a goal of, of glory in mind, well, then listen to the scriptures for it's taught throughout the New Testament. Listen to Romans 2, 7. Paul said, To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. And to be clear, this was Paul's aim himself. He sought this hard. Listen to how he wrote in Philippians 3. He said, Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. Here he's talking about the resurrection of the dead. I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those who are mature think this way. And if anyone thinks otherwise, God will reveal that to you also. So it is my prayer that God would do that for us, that he would show us that we should seek hard after glory that comes from him through humility. So let us not be fooled into thinking that the Christian life is merely about suffering. It is not about seeking misery. No, what we are seeking after is glory that comes from God. But in the pursuit of this prize, let me warn us by reminding us that the sin that separated us from God was the very pride that sought glory itself. To be put above God rather than below God. You see, Adam, he was given a high position in the garden to rule over all creation. So too, you and I as, as children of God have been given a high position to share in the glory that will be revealed when Christ returns. But we will never eclipse the glory of God. So again, let us keep our place, brothers and sisters. God is the one who will crown the righteous 
But even still, we will cast our crowns at the foot of Jesus. So let us live according to wisdom. Proverbs 25, do not put yourself forward in the king's presence or stand in the place of the great. For it is better to be told, come up here, than to be put lower in the presence of a noble. Again, Jesus said it this way, but many who are first will be last, and the last first. So let us understand and learn that the path to glory is not through greatness, but rather the, the path to glory is through humility. You see, a, a proud Christian really is a contradiction, isn't it? Not even an oxymoron. An oxymoron can exist, but a proud Christian is a strange and sad contradiction. As we've seen already, those who are proud are so because they have forgotten the greatness and the might of God. But those who are proud have also forgotten something else. They have forgotten grace. Paul said to the proud Corinthians, this is how one should regard us. He's speaking of himself and Apollos, another preacher there in Corinth. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ, stewards of the mystery of God. And he continues in verse 6, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against the other. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? It's so strange about us especially those of us who are Calvinists, we get so puffed up with pride about the doctrines of grace that we love. But when we're puffed up over the doctrines of grace, understand what's happening. We have forgotten what they actually mean. We don't actually understand grace itself. Consider the, the particular doctrine of unconditional election and how it points to grace. It magnifies the grace of God that should cause us to be humble. The doctrine of unconditional election teaches that we are not chosen by God because of anything special in us. Listen to how Moses said it, the Lord said it through Moses to his people Israel in Deuteronomy 7. For you are a people holy to the Lord God. The Lord God has chosen you to be a people of his treasured possession out of all the peoples on the face of the earth. So all of a sudden you think, well, we're pretty special. We're pretty great, important to the Lord that he would choose us instead of them. Keep reading. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all people. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand to redeem you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. You see it right there. It's not greatness that causes God to choose any of us. It's love. It's his mercy. It's his grace. We see it again in Ephesians 1, this, this doctrine of election. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. And what was the purpose of his will? 
in choosing any of us. It's bookended right here in Ephesians 3, 1 3 through 6. It's for his glory, verse 6. To the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. And in verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ. It's so that we would praise him that he set his love on us and chose us and saved us. There's nothing great in us at all. It's a strange thing that we would boast in our knowledge of, of doctrine. It's the same strange thing that these mysteries that God has opened our eyes to because of his grace would cause us to be puffed up with pride. And so let us learn then from this that our enemy is crafty. And he cloaks himself as an angel of light, even using rich, beautiful doctrine to cause us to sin. And so let us not boast in our knowledge of the truth, but instead let us boast in the one who is true. For the one who boasts boasts in the Lord. If we have God's greatness firmly in one hand and his grace in the other, his might and his mercy both grasped, then we will walk humbly with our God. And so in this, let us seek hard after the glory that he will give to those who are humble. But in so doing, let us do it in the way by which he has appointed Seek hard after glory, but do it by humbling yourself under the mighty hand of God. Which leads us to the, the final verse in our text. How does one actually humble themselves under the mighty hand of God? What's this actually look like in practice? Verse 6, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he might exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. And if you don't know what that actually looks like, to, what it's actually mean to cast anxieties on him, we get a hint from Philippians 4, where Paul said, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And so here we see the path of humility. It's prayer. When we pray, we cast all our anxieties on the Lord, who is strong and mighty. One of the biggest differences between the, the horizontal dimension of humility that we saw in verse 5 with the vertical dimension of humility that we see here in verses 6 and 7 is the way in which that, dem, that, that humility is, is demonstrated. The horizontal humility that, that exists between you and me is shown by serving one another, lowering ourselves beneath one another so that, that when there is one who is weak, those who are great would, would serve them. As Jesus taught us, the greatest among you shall be the servant. But how do we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God? How do we who are weak humble ourselves under him who is far great, far greater than any of us who are here? Is it through serving him? No. Now we do serve him. We do worship him. We do obey him. I don't want us to confuse categories here, but, but we do not serve him in the way that we serve one another. When we serve one another, we serve him, right? Because we're the body of Christ. But listen to this in Acts 17. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So how does one humble themselves 
to those who are strong? How do we ourselves humble ourselves to the one who is strongest above all? Will those who are weak humble themselves by receiving help from those who are greater? And the one who is greatest of all is the Lord Jesus Christ. We humble ourselves beneath his mighty hand by casting our anxieties onto him. We let him serve us because he who is strong can bear every worry that we have. You see, pride is a strange thing, is it not? On the one hand, our pride will put down those who are beneath us. But on the other, pride does not acknowledge weakness and seek help when it is needed. Our own pride keeps us from going to the Lord, though we are helpless without him. And so where do you go when you look for help? When you are sick, how many of us are so quick to go to medicine and doctors? When you are hated by men, we're very quick to go to friends and family and others who love us. But when you are all out of help, and when you are all alone, where will you go? Psalm 121, I lift my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. There, once again, we see the might, the strength of our creator who is high and lifted up, who made all things, who we are underneath, Oh, but he cares for you, and he will help you. So when there is no place to turn, or even before you turn to any other place for that matter, when you have anxieties that that creep up within your heart, make your requests known to God. Cast your anxieties into his strong hands, for he is able to save Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord, our God. Those who do not pray are those who are proud. And so we come to our Lord, often I hope, humbly I hope, casting every burden onto him. And we can do so with confidence, Peter tells us in verse 7, because he cares for you. I don't want us to, to get puffed up this morning. The Lord would not have that for us. It is unfitting for us to be puffed up. We are lowly. And yet I don't want us to confuse our lowly state for being that that is cast aside. Oh, we are lowly, but to be clear, you are oh so loved. If you doubt that, you know where to look, don't you? To the cross, where his care and love was put on display. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? 
So clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time he might exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Brothers and sisters, I want us to know this morning, humility is not optional for us. Humility lies at the very heart of what it means to be a Christian. But even Jesus' disciples forgot this. The disciples that came to Jesus in Matthew 18 saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. But whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. If you recognize pride in yourselves this morning, then look to the greatness and grace of God, to the might and mercy of him who died for you. Hold his greatness and his grace firmly in both hands. He died for you, but he also rose so that you too might live. And hold this in your hands firmly so that you might know your place. You are small, but he is strong. If you are struggling with humility this morning, look again to the humility of Christ that was displayed on the cross. You have a glorious master who humbled himself willingly. Will you not imitate him in his humility and do the same for your brothers and sisters? And if you recognize pride in your heart that keeps you from coming to him, I want you to know that you have a God who cares for you and a God who is strong enough to take your burdens on himself. You have a gracious God who is strong and loving. And so will you not cast your anxieties on him this morning? I pray you do. I pray we all do. So let us go to him now humbly and cast our anxieties on him because he cares for you. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your grace and your mercy that was poured out on us who are proud and arrogant. Lord, I do pray that you would convict us of our sin, break us down so that we might humble ourselves before you this morning. I pray that we would not be puffed up, but Lord, give us hearts of love for you, and for one another that would glory in what you have done through the gospel. Lord, not to us, but to your name is all the glory. And so we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.